This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500 500. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. This is Major Garrett. The show is The Takeout. Our guest, Patrick McHenry. He is the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. Mr. Chairman, it's great to see you. Great to be with you. Thanks, Major. We're at Ted's Bulletin, one of our favorite restaurants near Capitol Hill. So that happy sound you hear around us will be... an. I hope, energetic part of the background noise of the show. A uh, big issue, Mr. Chairman. We're recording this on January 19th. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has just informed the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, that the United States has met and reached its statutory debt limit. Will the U.S. default in the calendar year 2023? No. No. Um and How can you be so sure? Um, well, look, uh, we have uh, these deadlines are have, have been often reached, and we've always negotiated our way through this thing. Um, the opening stance here from any administration is we're not negotiating, uh, and every administration negotiates, um, and it's in connection with uh, both a, a spending level uh, agreement uh, between the House, the Senate, and the White House. Um, and uh, and a release of the debt ceiling for a period of time. Um, so we have a statutory requirement on the debt ceiling, and I think we have to make sure that we we meet that uh, expectation of of upping the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. Debt ceiling is is about previous decisions. Yes. Made. Um, it is the equivalent as a parent of finding out your child has gotten a credit card at college. Mm-hmm. And you get the first statement back, and you see that it's uh, pizza and booze. Okay, 
you may not be happy about the the decision about spending that money and putting the debt on the credit card, but you have to make a decision on whether or not to ruin your child's credit rating to make a point to them or deal with the, the issue, right? Take care of the debt piece and deal with the behavior piece separately. Separately. So those are two separate functions. Right. So I think it's important that we understand those as two separate functions. However, when we get into a negotiation of this sort, you have a lot of interest from fiscal conservatives for us to address in a sincere and real way the fiscal house. And that is the reason why it's always raising connection with our debt and deficit. Um, but it really deals with current year spending right. and the question of whether or not we're dealing with longer term mandatory spending that brings structural reforms. On this day, January 19th, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has said he wants to engage the White House and Senate Democrats in negotiations over spending cuts linked to increasing the debt ceiling. In December, you were quoted, and I want to read this directly to you. I'm going to advocate for a separation of those two issues so that we can have a proper debate. Is that still your position? That's still my position. That doesn't mean it's a winning position, and it doesn't mean that that holds sway over the majority of Republicans in the House. It clearly does not. Um, I respect that. Um, Now, how do we address this? Well, first, I want my colleagues to understand what the the Treasury's market is and what it's not. Uh, This is global money. It goes right back to U.S. having the reserve currency status for the globe. It's not simply the power of our dollar. It's also treasuries that act as dollars globally, which enhance trade with the United States and connectivity. You've described treasuries as, quote, the lifeblood of U.S. capital markets. And I think that's probably an understatement. Um, This is... And members in your side should understand that. This is like air and water uh, for international commerce. Um, it is, it's about every financial institution around the globe um, and something they have on their balance sheet that it, they consider riskless. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we, once we make that uh, a, risk, a non-riskless uh, asset, it changes the whole economics globally and global growth. And so it does have big impacts. So while I'm going to continue to advocate for what I think are wise decisions on how we separate the two issues... I think they're, they're, they are fundamentally linked, especially in a year like we're experiencing right now. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to make clear to the administration that cooler heads need to prevail and that we need to d- address fiscal solvency for the long term. And we need to do it now and get on with, uh, get on with that conversation. What would be for you, Mr. Chairman, a demonstration of cooler heads prevailing at the White House. What would you need to hear or see? Well, I, I think uh, Senator Manchin, uh, being the first Democrat to say, well, actually, we should address the fiscal solvency of Medicare. He currently does not work at the White House. That's that's true. He but may have aspirations, but he doesn't now. What do you need to see from the or hear from the White House? Uh, that, yes, they will engage, and they're willing to engage on a fiscal panel to address Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security solvency uh, that, that, are structural, that are structural reforms necessary to keep them solvent for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I think that would be a hopeful sign uh, that we can make some progress um, and not have brinksmanship. So far, the White House position has been we are not going to negotiate, and to not only say that, but to add adjectives about with whom the negotiators might be. Well, that's fine. Terrorists, financial terrorists, financial wrecking crew, 
They want to destroy the U.S. solvency in order to either make or try to achieve a policy or political point. That's the rhetoric that has accompanied this. It's the rhetoric that's accompanied these standoffs in the past. Do you expect that rhetoric to yield? No. I mean, look, they can say whatever harsh words they want uh, about folks that want to address fiscal solvency. I got it. Uh, It's a political debate. Um, I'm telling you my position of separating these two Mm -hmm. is not the prevailing view among House Republicans. I'm trying to advocate a ground here so we can get through the situation. I'm trying to address things as they are, not as I wish them to be. Mm -hmm. And so the White House can hope their way through and hope that it turns out uh, for them like it did for Obama. And by the way, that's most of their playbook. I got it. Um, just trying to be Obama and hope to live for another day. Uh, but in this situation, it's not going to work that way. It's different. And it's a very different situation than when we're sitting in and 11 the perception and I have, Mr. Chairman, is it's different because the number of House Republicans who are entrenched on this issue is larger than it was in the Obama confrontations. And in the aftermath of the protracted, and I don't need to tell you how protracted it was, battle for Kevin McCarthy to achieve the speakership, representations were made. To those right. hardliners, what were they? Well, they said, we want to address our fiscal house. And that means we have to have an aggressive stance when it comes to the budget we pass through the House of Representatives, the spending levels we have uh, for current year appropriations bills, and then a desire to have structural reforms for the long term to put us in a, on, on a solvent path. The fact is, Republicans are returning to power with a, a federal government that is a third larger than when we left power four years ago in the House of Representatives. It is significantly larger than it was pre-COVID. So there's a firm desire among conservatives to address the fiscal house. What I'm trying to do is arbitrate a deal between an unwilling White House and emboldened left that think that debt and deficits don't matter and fiscal conservatives that believe the fundamentals of our economy our revolve around our fiscal stability long term, our growth prospects, our tax rates, um, and our social safety net all require us to address these, these spending levels. So I'm trying to bring people together, and they're all saying very harsh things that make it almost in, 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 unimaginable, unimaginable that you could come to terms. But we have to come to terms, and I don't care how harsh the rhetoric is. We have to fix the problem for the state of the economy and for the state of the global economy. And by fixing the problem, so my audience understands, that means statutorily raising the debt limit. This has to be done. Yes. It's a necessary part of governing. And what I'm saying is, in order for us to unhitch that, you then have to have a process to address the larger fiscal house questions. But you don't know what that looks like yet, do you, Mr. Chairman? We don't know what the art of the possible is on this date. Uh, But we have time. We have a few months. Uh, We've got roughly uh, six months uh, is uh, best guess, perhaps seven, uh, to address those things. Let me stop you right there, Mr. Chairman. Six or seven months to resolve this, maybe less. I'm Major Garrett. Patrick McHenry is our special guest. Back in a moment. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. 
This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Ted's Bulletin is our host restaurant. They specialize in homemade Pop-Tarts. That will be the menu choice of the day. Pop-Tarts and coffee. Buttering me up. Exactly. So I'll actually Sugar and caffeine makes the world go round, at least from my perspective. Patrick McHenry is our guest. He is the chairman of the Financial Services Committee on the House side. Mr. Chairman, continuing our conversation, Bloomberg wrote this week that you are the key Republican to watch in these entire negotiations. Do you believe that's true? No. Um, Who is the key Republican to watch? Kevin McCarthy. Um, You have a very close relationship working and political with the Speaker, do you not? I do. I do. You were instrumental Um, in him ultimately obtaining the Speakership, were you not? There are a lot of us that were helpful to him in in the vital week that was 15 votes for the Speakership. Played out for all the world to see. That's right. Um, and as I said then, uh, the, the goal usually in politics and in life is to suffer your indignities in private, not in public. Uh, but we did it full scale in public as House Republicans. So, look, um, I have confidence in the speaker. I have confidence in his leadership capacity and ability to get the best of every political situation he can. Uh, but in this situation for the debt ceiling, um, it's a complex set of trade-offs, And there'll be a lot of folks that are willing to help. Yeah, both in the in the House and the Senate, uh, but we need a, a White House to engage. You talked a moment ago, Mr. Chairman, about the art of the possible. I'm a big believer in the art of the possible. I've watched it play out, and I've watched it come to frustrating standoffs. Mm-hmm. You said a moment ago that the current prevailing attitude within the House Republican Conference is to entrench on this issue. Do you believe there is a possibility, to use your words, of persuading your House Republican colleagues differently? Or do you think they're going to stay where they are and therefore the White House has to move? Well, I think uh, both need to happen. Um, you need to soften them up a little bit and the White House needs to sure, soften its sure. edges a bit. And so what what we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, there are a number of policy proposals that that uh, to address our fiscal uh, house <clears throat> that are at play here. Some are commissions to review, for instance, Medicare mm-hmm. or Medicaid and the uh, solvency issues connected there. Um, others um, have reviewed Social Security like we did with the Greenspan Commission in the early 80s um, that changed Social Security structurally. So an off-ramp might be the creation of a presidentially organized congressionally mandated commission on these issues? Well, a, a joint congressional executive branch Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been a number that have been kicked around over the years. Um, and so something like that could be an off-ramp, and that would be something that, that I would advocate for. Um, and if we can get that, that I, if we could get a commission like that, 
that has the potential to unlock a number of keys to this this uh, legislative year. Uh, first, with the debt ceiling, and then second, with government funding measures. Mm-hmm. So, very important national defense priorities as well as domestic priorities. We have to fund for the fall. Mr. Chairman, I don't need to tell you that I can hear the voices, though I'm never allowed in on the House Republican conference meetings, I can hear the voices now saying, oh, for God's sake, how many commissions have we had on this? Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson, and I can name others, I'll just leave it at that, and they've all gone nowhere. Why would we believe in a commission now? Why would we accept that as a negotiating victory when they haven't been in the past. I think I would be fairly representative of the voices you might hear in a private House Republican conference on this question, would I not? Sure. And this is about a menu of options. It's not about uh, the greatest genius idea ever to come to man. And so what I'm talking about is the art of the possible. And when you have a menu, as we do, of options, it is not an infinite array of choices. And you a have limited to pick. Array. It it's, really is a limited array. So, and we're dealing with a stubborn administration and a progressive left that is very different from where they were 10 years ago. There's a belief among um, prominent Democrats that our debt and deficit do not have negative economic impacts, but are in fact a, an enhancement to our growth capacity. Um, and that type of economic thinking is, is, was laughed out of. Uh, economic um, debates for generations, and now is over a period of a decade is is held uh, great sway among Democrats. So the left is in a different spot than we were a decade ago. But and also the right, the right is in a different spot. Correct, um, and, and that's why there's genuine anxiety. I don't need to tell you this, Mr. Chairman, on Wall Street, among sovereign wealth funds, uh, and indiv- individuals who buy treasuries. There is trem- there is a higher I sense a much higher degree of anxiety about this being resolved than the last time I went through this. Yes. The last time I went through this, it seemed to most observers an unseemly but necessary bit of political theatrics. Unseemly is still a word they would use, but they are fearful that this will not be theatrical, this will be practical, and potentially, for a period of time, a measurable period of time, ruinous. And that's the reason why... I have my firm position on where I think we should be. And what I'm saying is my position is not the dominant position here. I think we we should resolve this and have our fiscal conversation separate and distinct from it. But we're not in that situation. Not yet. And so we can come to terms with that or the White House can risk enormous peril. I don't think it's a good situation when you have a stubborn White House not willing to have any conversations whatsoever. I think that is economically stupid. Um, so I think we have, to have let, we have to enable cooler heads to prevail, and that's where I'm going to remain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to remain in the center here so that we can actually have a reasonable thing come together. It sounds like a weedy question, but it's really not. It's a very practical question. Are you in favor of a numeric increase in the debt ceiling or a time horizon? Uh, I am agnostic. I've supported uh, both. Uh, I've actually From supported the Treasury both. Department's perspective, they would like a date because a dollar amount is less predictable. 
correct, especially in an interest rate environment, inflationary environment like we currently are in, um, where economic growth forecasts and income forecasts are, have been wildly off the mark. I completely understand that. Um, I've supported uh, both policies in the past. I've, I've, I've voted for both policies in the past. Um, I am for what we can get done. And that is pass. Right. Yeah. And look, I've, I spent time in House Republican leadership, mm-hmm. and I've now spent time running a committee. It was my intention to go back and run committee and focus on policy and policy initiatives that I could get enacted into law. That's been my focus, not to get dragged into these uh, larger political debates uh, that leadership needs to go make decisions on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was my intention and my focus in going back to run the right. House Financial Services Committee. Right. But you get pulled back in when matters of state call, and this, I think, is an important matter of state. And... If the White House were to say, we can have a discussion about future entitlement spending, would that by itself be enough? I think that would be a significant give in a significant way from a White House that has been stubborn to admit even the basic of economic facts. Can you imagine a scenario, though, Mr. Chairman, where the White House, who has said that we are not budging on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid because we helped create them in the first place, we the Democratic Party, and therefore we're not going to start there. Can you imagine a political position they would take that would move so far away from that rhetoric? So we have insolvency dates for these large entitlement programs. There are 2028 and 2032. 2028 for? Uh, for Medicaid. Care, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, and 2032 for Social Security benefits. So these are dates that are actions of law, and if they want to preside over massive cuts through inaction, that is their prerogative, Um, and they can they can answer the political questions there. When we have insolvency of these institutions, these these vital um, economic. safety nets um, for the American people, I think we have a moral obligation to go address them to save them for the next generation. Um, And so they can be a part of addressing and saving them, um, and they can do so in a bipartisan way. But without any kind of uh, bipartisanship here, we're going to be at an impasse for the debt ceiling, and we're going to be in an impasse for spending bills for the next two years. And then we're going to have to wait for the next presidential election to figure out what we're going to do on national defense, domestic spending, um, and then we're going to have to suffer the economic consequences of inaction on the debt ceiling. I don't think that's a smart way for presidential leadership to express itself, that is nor the do voice. I think it's in, in the economic interest of the American people. The voice of Patrick McHenry, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment three of The Takeout in just a minute. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? 
or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Ted's Bulletin, our host restaurant. What you see arrayed in front of us, Ted Tarts. Not that other thing I said earlier, Ted Tarts. Well, let's see what these things are like and, here. Uh, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry, is going to dig in, as am I. Coffee and sugar makes the world go round. Uh, changing topics, Mr. Chairman. Um, FTX is a massive cryptocurrency failure with criminal implications. There are enormous questions raised about the viability of cryptocurrency. What does FTX tell us about that viability? Um, that you have sociopaths and fraudsters attracted to new technology. Always is the case. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always the case. The, the Pop-Tart, uh, the Ted Tarts are fantastic. Um, <clears throat> New technology always invites in fraud, fraudsters and sociopaths. And this is certainly a new technology. Um, the reason why they're able to take advantage in this marketplace is our failure to actually provide clear rules of the road and a clear set of regulation that protects consumers and enables innovation. So the, the largest American-affiliated exchange was domiciled in the Bahamas. You don't think of the Bahamas as the same sort of um, marker as Hong Kong or London or New York, right? Right. So you question, why in the hell were they there in the first place? Mm-hmm. Well, it can't be because of a high regulation mm-hmm. or no. a consumer protection no. regime. So, um, so we have to have clarity around our regulation. We have to have clarity for two reasons, that consumer protection piece and also the innovation piece. There is enormous amount of there's an enormous amount of economic potential that could be unleashed through this new technology. When you take out uh, third-party intermediaries in an exchange, it can reduce the cost of those exchanges, and we can enable greater economic activity. Now that's the potential. Along the road here, we've had an enormous loss of people's assets, and consumers have been harmed. Um, we have enormous number of fraudsters in this regime that need to be wrung out, um, and we have to bring greater amount of transparency to this whole process. So there's a lot that has to happen, but clear rules of the road here in the United States can unlock this economic potential. Patrick McHenry is our guest, chairman of the Financial Services Committee on the House side. You know, Mr. Chairman, that one of the reasons all the things you just said didn't happen was because the crypto industry was sloshing this town with campaign contributions on both sides of the aisle to create bumpers or ways to hedge against exactly what you just described. Strict regulatory rules and methods by which they had to operate. Well, that's a failure of the system on two levels, it seems to me. Yeah, they're, they were coming here seeking inaction. Right. And making campaign contributions in order to guarantee inaction. <clears throat> And we had regulators that are asleep at the switch. 
So we have existing regulars at the CFTC and the SEC that it didn't apply existing rules around how you hold assets and how you protect consumers' value. They didn't apply the basics of those rules uh, to these entities. Had they done that, American investors would be less bad off than they currently are. So you had regulators asleep at the switch, and that had nothing to do with campaign fundraising at all. Had everything to do with their malfeasance. And I lay the blame at Gary Gensler, the SEC, for their inaction, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I see bipartisan challenges on Capitol Hill for us to legislate and provide clear rules of the road here. But it's my goal to go fix that problem through clarity under law. And that doesn't mean it's perfectly going to it's going to be perfectly pleasing to any one group, but it's going to be the necessary clarity so we can actually have an asset that could be freely exchanged, uh, freely traded, and we can then unlock the potential, the economic potential of this new product. When will the industry and American investors writ large see that legislation from the House Financial Services Committee well, when they should expect that? We started with bipartisan hearings overseeing FTX. Mm-hmm. First started under Chairwoman Waters in December, the Financial Services Committee, and I will take that over with our first uh, hearing in the month of February once our committee's up and running. And we're going to continue this theme of what happened with FTX, how we address it. Then we'll see legislation come out of the committee by summer. By summer. Is Sam Bankman-Fried the only sociopath in this space? No. What is he? He is, a, he is a pretender to the technology, and he's a pretender to all the things that, that made him laudable in the media, uh, where he littered, he littered uh, a bunch of the media infrastructure uh, through nonprofit entities in order to get favorable coverage to, of himself. And he pretended to many different things, whether it's uh, ESG ethos, whether it was liberalism or progressivism, um, it was, uh, or the technology itself, that he was a technologist. He was running, he was running a, a multifaceted crypto exchange using QuickBooks, a small business software that all of us can access to run our small businesses. No large business runs off this. It's not designed to do that. And that's what he, he was a pretender to the technology. Um, and so, in every facet of the word, he represents what is absolute worst about the world of crypto and about the world of business. It was made off. He beguiled off, it was smart Andron. people. How did he do that? He beguiled lots of smart people. Oh, absolutely, and smart money. He sold a lot of smart money and, and average retail investors as well. Um, it was a world-class sociopath um, uh, doing, doing big things. I mean, it, there'll be stories written and movies written about his capacity um, uh, that was quite special and quite different um, than, than folks that have come to town in, during my time. And when you see him give interviews where he expresses confusion about what happened and suggests that he didn't really understand how all this collapsed so rapidly, what do you say to yourself? It's bull- but I shouldn't say that on, on a venerable news agency like CBS. Um, he's proven himself to be a sociopath by his actions. He's proven himself to be untrustworthy untru- by his actions. No word he utters should be believed. Period. For those who are still trying to wrap their head around the 
methodology of cryptocurrency, how it's valued, how it's produced, how it should be traded, what would you tell them? At the very beginning of all new technologies, there's a great question of utility. Both, first with the internal combustion engine, the automobile, um, uh, petrochemicals, oil, um, uh, trains, all at the very inception of these things that are useful in electricity. Electric, right? What are you going to do with these things? What good will it produce? And what are the risks attached? Yes. And so we had those same questions at the beginning of the internet. What are people going to do with it? Mm -hmm. What is the economic potential here? We had um, award-winning economists that questioned the economic utility of the internet at the beginning of the internet. Um, and the internet has unlocked so much economic potential in ways that we couldn't have conceived of. People exchanging products that don't know each other, right. homemade products or right. otherwise, that amount of that commerce we couldn't have contemplated. Or using using the internet to actually get a car service to go take you somewhere, we could have contemplated 30 years ago. So we're in a we're in a similar position with blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies that enable blockchain technology, we don't understand fully the potential that can be brought here. The first thing we think of is the world of payments, mm -hmm. micropayments being unlocked, and economic potential around small dollar exchanges of value. But that's the first thing. Right. We don't know what's going to be built off this new set of, of protocols. We're going to talk about blockchain and verification of payments in a moment because it's essential to understanding what the economic potential is or isn't of crypto. And we're going to do that with Patrick McHenry, Chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. I'm Major Garrett. Stay with us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. We're at Ted's Bulletin. Ted Tarts are, I'm here to tell you, spectacular, and caffeine and sugar make the world go round. Patrick McHenry is our guest, continuing our conversation. So, Mr. Chairman, on cryptocurrency, um, it arose, not directly, but somewhat indirectly, out of the Great Recession, and the sense that in the real estate collapse, there was inadequate measurement and registration of transactions and things got bundled and do in instruments that people could invest in and 
blockchain is a way to systematically and via computers, as I understand it, verify each and every step of the transaction chain, the blockchain. That's where it gets each of those as a block and it's on a chain. And it's therefore seamlessly and permanently verifiable, which all sounds great in theory and is in times of uh, economic uncertainty can be a place of reliability. And yet those are not the words that are being used in and around crypto right now, reliability and security. What went wrong? Um, it's third-party intermediaries that are that are encroaching on this space. When you say and, a third-party intermediary, what does that mean? Um, <clears throat> people that are investing and speculating. Okay. Um, and the, the key thing here is when you have a technology that is enabled by itself, you don't have to trust a third party to verify right, right. the contents of what's in there. Right. As you aptly described, it's in the technology. Right. Right? So I want to... You don't need a bank to house that. Right. It, it's housed within it's on the, the technology. Right. right? So, um, and the, the verification is owned by everybody that's a part of the, that, that chain. So understand this. In order to hack Bitcoin, you have to hack... Um, hundreds of thousands of different computers in order to potentially do that. So that re that safety is built into that system. What is be what has become the fundamental challenge here are those that are using that technology, or that are your on ramps and off ramps to that technology. They hold your asset, and if you get lending with them, are they truly a bank or not a bank? Mm -hmm. Right. And if they're not a bank, are they adhering to bank standards on uh, on that product? They're not adhering to those basic banking standards, number one. Number two, they're not holding your asset as your asset. Once it comes onto their books, it's a part of their books. And you have folks that are giving you a yield product, a return, um, that looks like the only way it would function is a Ponzi scheme to get that type of return in a market like this. And so what happened was fraudsters pretending to be other financial intermediaries mm -hmm. or trying to act like other financial intermediaries are using a good product and trying to enrich themselves in that wrap. Right. So that is where all the fraud has occurred Right, here. and as valuations went up, people said, I got to get in. And they weren't... And they didn't have the ability to judge with whom they were getting in. And so they handed their money over to, in your word, fraudsters. And that is... That's and they the, got stung in the process. And so those, those things are not uh, blockchain-enabled or crypto-enabled frauds. They're old-school frauds. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that they were doing in the 1880s in the stock market in the United States. They were doing in the crypto stock exchange, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, of the last decade. It's the same crap from the 19, 1870s and 1880s in the U.S. stock market that they housed in a new product in the last decade. Mm -hmm. It's the stuff that we've rent out of our economic system through basic transparency and a basic set of property rights and law. We've got to pro provide those and provide clarity in this new marketplace. As a practical matter, should anyone on your committee, Republican or Democrat, accept campaign contributions from this industry while writing this legislation? It is their decision under their view. Do you have a view. particular point of view on that? 
Um, everyone is interested in my committee in some way, shape, or form. Right. And the people that contribute to my campaign are making a decision for themselves. I'm not making a decision um, to endorse their their ideas. They're making a, a decision to endorse my ideas. Mm-hmm. That's been my longstanding view. Right. Members need to make a decision for themselves, and candidates need to make a decision for themselves on who they take contributions Can from. Can you understand why the public, considering the history that you agreed with me, as I described earlier... Lots of money being sloshed around to have nothing happen might appreciate a higher wall of separation as this legislation moves forward. Look, we're all worms in the political process, um, and the, that's how the budget view uh, that that the budget. That's that's how the public views us. Um, I can tell you this: I have longstanding views that I've made very clear to the public. Uh, both when I was a candidate and all the way through my public life. And people need to hold me accountable for those views. Mm-hmm. And I can be held accountable just like everyone else every two years at elect, uh, the, uh, the ballot box. And a campaign contribution one way or the other is not going to tilt that? Uh, no, you cannot buy my opinion one way or another. Um, and if that were the case, I should go to jail. And those that do that should go to jail. Understood. Do you have any aspirations, Patrick McHenry, to be Speaker of the House of Representatives? No. Never? Uh, it's not my goal. It's my goal to be a successful chairman and to help Kevin McCarthy be a successful Speaker of the House. That's why I worked so hard to get Kevin elected, um, and I'm very happy that he's in, in the speakership. He is the right person for the job. How difficult was that process? Hard. Hard. It was... Uh, it was one of the... What made it hard? A tight house. I mean, look, when you have a four-vote margin um, and you had five people publicly saying they would never vote for Kevin McCarthy, we knew it was a tough task. It was my goal to get this number down to a single-digit array of people that were not going to vote for Kevin. If we could get that, if we could move people of the 20 and we could get it down to six, seven, eight people... I know of Kevin's personal capacity, one-on-one with people, and that could close it out. And that's exactly what happened. A whole group of us helped to go work that process. Folks that were part of the dissident group that were of goodwill and said, we want the right assurances and we can come on board. And so there was goodwill here, and 14 people moved during one vote. And that was the moment I knew it took Kevin's first-world-class ability one-on-one to close people that was going to get us across the line. So once I knew we got in that final afternoon, it was up to Kevin and he closed it. And uh, it was one more hiccup. Well, there's, there was not just one more, but that was the one visible hiccup you could see on the house floor. What was, what else happened? There was a lot more that happened that last day on that last day. um, There are at least Three, there are three times, in my view, that Kevin McCarthy um, was, at that moment, I thought would never be Speaker of the House. Um, when I moved to adjourn the House because of Matt Gates' request that we adjourn the House, um, that was the third time. And I so thought it was, was over. it was even more of a cliffhanger than it looked like on live television. Yes. That's the voice of Patrick McHenry. Chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. Podcasters, please stay with us. And on CBS News Streaming, we'll be back next week. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Ted's Bulletin, our host restaurant. Ted Tarts arrayed in front of us, sugar and caffeine. I said it before, I will say it again, make the world go round. Patrick McHenry, Chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, is our special guest. Uh, To continue the conversation we had that just ended in the main body of the show, three times you thought Kevin McCarthy, who was Speaker now, might not be Speaker. That is astonishing to me. Three times in that That one Friday. That was the last day. Yeah. Three times in the last day. Was that about a misunderstanding or dishonesty? It's it's hard to tell. It, it we're too I'm too close to the situation. I I, I want to believe largely about a misunderstanding mm-hmm. on two of those occasions um, earlier in the day. What People happened, thought they heard one thing and they heard another, or yes. it got lost in translation. Yes. Someone played telephone or whatever. Yes, and and that happens. Sounds a little too situations. neat to me. Look, I mean, tensions were really high and emotions were very high. Um, and there was a key moment early in the day where everything was going swimmingly on the House floor and visibly very positive. Kevin McCarthy looked very confident. Others around him, yourself included, looked confident. It felt, to those of us who were longtime observers of this, which we had never seen before, I grant you, so I was cautious, but it felt like the momentum was building and about to crest. Well, that was at midday. And at midday, that was the first time I thought it was over. Um, when I had a key member tell me that they were they would not move, um, and it was my responsibility to move this member uh, to the yes column. And the member's name? It's too soon still. <laughs> too um, soon. <laughs> it's too soon still. Because um, emotions are still high, still raw. And that was the moment I walked away from the conversation. And I thought it was over. And I thought it was over because of what I did. Now, I don't know if it's a misunderstanding. Um, he said it wasn't me. I, I have no recollection of it being me. Um, and that moment, everything was going well on the House floor. Everybody was very happy, and it was a visible show of progress for Kevin on the House floor. First time. The third time, I'll skip over the second time because it's such a jumbled mess that mm-hmm. you don't have enough time. Right. <clears throat> the third time was when I was giving my nominating speech. Right. I knew we didn't have the votes. I know, knew that Bobert and Gates were not yeses. 
And I knew I was giving what I thought at 5 o'clock when Kevin asked me to do it to give his final nominating speech. I thought, was the final nominating speech. And by 6 o'clock, I knew it was not going to be the final nominating speech, that we're in store for a much longer road. So when I gave that speech at 10 o'clock, I was at absolute misery that we still had many, many potentially days to go. Um, so very hard to put a good face on what I knew was a tough, tough situation. It was, my, it was my perspective, Mr. Chairman, watching it play out that if it hadn't happened that night, it wasn't going to happen. That if it had been delayed until Monday, it would have all unraveled. And I knew at would that you, moment... Would, 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 that, would you agree with that? I think it's a fair assessment. And that's why I knew when Gates and Boebert didn't switch that night... That was the third moment I thought it was over. And when Gates said, we have to adjourn until Monday at noon, and I had a member who was in solidly in our column tell me we had to do that because of the, uh, because of the, the violent situation that broke out, mm-hmm. um, I knew we had a problem. And when I, when I moved to adjourn that day, um, that was the, the absolute worst feeling I had during the whole battle for the speakership, from the moment after the day after the election until until the fifteenth vote, um, that is the absolute depths of of my feeling, and it's the as a friend the worst feeling I've had about what I've done to a friend, um, because I thought at that moment that I'd basically killed my friend's chances to be speaker of the house. Um, so to go from that to 15 minutes later, it being worked out, is a hell of a feeling. And the, the biggest roller coaster I've had on the House floor in the shortest amount of time. The voice of Patrick McHenry. Mr. Chairman, we usually ask the uh, three threshold questions. I'm going to invite you back to this show when we get closer to the debt ceiling and maybe when you have legislation on crypto, will you come back? I'd love to. And we'll do those questions then. But I wanted to hear you out on the drama, and I'm glad I did. So thank you very much. Thank you, Major. We'll see Appreciate everyone. You. Come back next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey survivors back and so is on fire the only official survivor podcast and we have a twist a new co-host the winner of survivor 45 d Vyadaris. hi listen to on fire the official survivor podcast wherever you get your podcast hi this is jill schlesinger cbs news business analyst certified financial planner and host of the money watch podcast this is the show where your money is not scary it is a show that's all about you It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.